I hear from people all the time where there are shades of Theranos everywhere. Everywhere you look, there's some version, some shade of this story. Maybe it's not to the same degree. Maybe it's not to the same dollar amount. But things like this, I think, actually happen a lot more often than people realize. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. The trial of Elizabeth Holmes has been everywhere recently. And now that it's over, our guest Tyler Shule is sharing with us some behind-the-scenes secrets from working at Theranos. Tyler first met Elizabeth when he was just 20 years old. After two miserable years working at Theranos, he spoke to the Wall Street Journal, exposing his realization that the Theranos tests were fake. Now at 31 years old, he looks over the entire experience. Today, Tyler tells me about what it was like working at Theranos with Elizabeth Holmes and how we can all keep another Theranos from rising. Here's our conversation. Well, welcome, Tyler. Thanks for joining me this afternoon. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. What a crazy few years must have been for you and that the trial is now concluded. What's your thought? Uh, yeah, well, first of all, a few years is a bit of an understatement because I first <laughs> met Elizabeth when I was 20 years old and I'm 31 now. So this saga has <laughs> over a yeah, decade. It's literally yeah. consumed my entire 20s. Um, and it feels really, really good to have the trial of Elizabeth Holmes behind me now. We still have Sonny's trial coming up, so it's not completely over. But having uh-huh. having Elizabeth's trial, you know, in the books with four guilty verdicts, definitely, um, definitely feels good. Feels like a weight off my shoulders. Yeah. Well, tell me more about your first impression when you met Elizabeth. And I know you work. Your first kind of job, yeah, is with Theranos as an intern, and then you joined. So tell tell us more about that story. Yeah, so I was really impressed with Elizabeth when I first met her. She has that Steve Jobs type reality distortion field that people talk about. And looking back on it, a lot of her character traits do seem very strange. But at the time, they were they all seemed very charismatic, like the black turtlenecks to mimic Steve Jobs, her very deep voice, her piercing, unblinking eyes. Um And when she spoke to you, she really did make you feel like you were the most important person in her entire world in that moment. She made you feel really, really special. And that was... I wonder how, what is that? You know, I know people said that about Bill Clinton. Oh, really? I hadn't heard that. Yeah. Is that a certain trait? Because I think that's important, right? To be able to do that. Now, when you think back, like, how did she do that? I don't know. She's, I mean, she's genuinely like, um, I don't, I don't really know how to say it. She's, she's a master of her, of her trade and that her trade is manipulation. (laughs) And she knows exactly what to say and how to say it at the exact right time to get you to do what she wants you to do. Um, and she does that over and over and over. And she's, She's really good at getting people to align with her way of seeing the world, to, to align with her vision. She did that with her investors. Mm-hmm. She did that with employees. She did that with the board. And then even during her trial, she took the stand and she, she did that with the jury. 
And even though the jury did find her guilty on four counts, they still say that it was hard to do that to somebody who was so likable. And when I wasn't in the courtroom, but apparently when she took the stand, she she laughed, she cried, she smiled, she made eye contact with the jurors. She, as much as you can while you're on the stand or in a courtroom, she tried to make a connection with those jurors and the jurors seemed to have felt that. Oh, wow. That is a skill set. It really is. It's good to have, but it can be scary when you don't use it the right way. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things where it's a character trait that you can either, it's a superpower and you can use it for good or you can use it for evil. Um, yeah. And I think she definitely used it to, to manipulate people negatively. You obviously got attracted to what her vision is. I mean, you join as an intern and then went back as a full-time. Yeah. So after I, I first met with her, I knew that I wanted to be part of her vision. I wanted to, to revolutionize healthcare by improving diagnostics. So I ended up interning there between my junior and senior year of college. Um, but during that time, I was never actually working with the Theranos product. And nobody who I was working with had ever worked with the Theranos product. All the labs were very siloed. I was doing antibody engineering. So kind of like deep research kind of, you know, in a lab. Mm-hmm not not working with anything anywhere close to what the final product was. Um, and that's why I came back. You know, I didn't I didn't see too many red flags when I wasn't working with the product. I, I only saw the good things and I built a relationship with Elizabeth. And so it seemed like it would be a great place to work after I finished college. And when I joined full time, I was convinced that I was going to work at Theranos for my entire career. I thought I would retire as a Theranos employee. Wow. I mean, it's interesting that you, you, you're saying that you're pretty siloed and Theranos, I mean, it's, it grew to a point, but it's still a small startup. I mean, it's still a startup, yet it's so siloed. Oftentimes, startup does not work like that. Yeah. Um, retrospectively, that was a huge red flag, how siloed everybody was. You know, you had um, the engineering team was not talking to the assay developers and they were not talking to the people who were validating the assays and they were not talking to the people who were running patient samples. And, you know, no one was talking to anybody. It's it's like there were there were these intentional barriers put in place to prevent communication, which is really, really strange. And when you think of a scientific startup, you would think, you would think executives would want to be encouraging communication as much as possible. That's what you're, you know, that's what most companies are trying to do, get their employees to communicate so everyone is aligned and going, moving the same direction. But we were not, we were the opposite. <laughs> it's almost like the environment that was created probably make people feel that they should not share also. Yeah, definitely. Um yeah, we were not supposed to share what we were doing in our lab with people who were in other labs. And it was all under the under the context of, you know, we have this revolutionary trade trade secret, revolutionary technology that we don't want to get out. We don't want LabCorp stealing these ideas. We don't want Quest Diagnostics stealing these ideas. But that's not what it was about. And when I kind of realized that is when a light bulb in the lab went out. And the lab was very tall, you know, huge vaulted ceilings. And an electrician came in, he was escorted by security. And in the lab, there are all these barricades to prevent the employees from seeing what was behind the barricades. But when the light bulb went out, the electrician came in, put up, you know, 20 foot ladder, 
walked up there to change the light bulb, could see over all the barricades. And at that, in that moment, I realized like these barricades are not to prevent secrets from getting out. They're, they're there to prevent people who are already inside from connecting dots. It's almost like a movie, like a yeah. mafia or something. It definitely <laughs> felt like that at times. I wonder if, you know, that kind of environment, I feel like I've been in that environment, but not as in a startup environment is um, I have another experience being in a landlord situation when they want to mm-hmm. do something that's crazy. And it just makes the people who are there feeling unsafe and uncomfortable. And for you to experience that and then you see something that is not right and to even be willing to not just quit, but you want to tell the you know, what happened, where do you find that strength and courage? Because you could just say quit and I'm like, you know what? Let me find another job. Yeah, I mean, the path of least resistance was certainly just to quit <laughs> and and find another job or, you know, go do a PhD or get a master's degree or something like that. And I I I think there are a lot of reasons why I ended up speaking up. Um, one, I think it actually really helped being very young and, you know, frankly, naive and also pretty arrogant. And, you know, when you're, when you're 22 years old, you feel like you can conquer the world and nothing really scares you. And I think in that sense, it was truly a blessing to be, to be so young. Um, but on top of that, I had also built a personal relationship with Elizabeth and we had seen plenty of cases where people did raise concerns and they were essentially fired on the spot. And in some cases, they were even sued afterwards. So um, no one's going to speak up. You know, you see, you see this cycle and you don't want to be involved in it. But I felt like I had this personal relationship with her and she would not be able to fire me the same way she could fire your average employee. Um, I mean, my grandfather was also on the board at that point. So I thought, you know, I am in a very unique position where I will be able to raise concerns and she can't just kick me to the curb. She has to listen to me. And mm-hmm. um, so that's that's why I decided to take my concerns directly to Elizabeth. And which she kind of, what did she do to that, the concern that when you bring it up to her? Uh, she pretty much brushed me off. She set me up with some meetings with a vice president and he also pretty much brushed me off. Um, and then I tried to set up one more meeting with Elizabeth and she started ignoring me saying she was too busy to meet with me, which is very unusual for her. And so ultimately Mm -hmm. she asked me to put my concerns in an email. And I am so, so lucky that she asked me to put my concerns in an email because it's all documented. It's all (laughs) timestamped. It's, um, it's really, I got really lucky that I put those concerns in an email and sent it to Elizabeth. And then Sonny, the, her boyfriend, who's also the president and COO of the company, ended up responding and essentially said that I was arrogant, ignorant, patronizing, reckless. I had no understanding of math, science, or statistics. That if I had any other last name that I would have already been fired. So um, I got a pretty aggressive response in return. Right. But then... You could have stopped there, right? Yeah, I, I should have. I could have stopped there. Maybe you should <laughs> have you stopped there. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder, you know, because because it's easier, right? Like, what's in it for you, right? Yeah. But for you to speak up is sometimes you 
you need to have that special superpower that make you feel like okay, yeah, I've been doing something that bigger than me. It's not just about me. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And and for sure, part of this was like an inability to sleep at night knowing that we were releasing tests to the public that were going to hurt people. And, you know, we were testing people for HIV. <laughs> you know, these it's not a joke. It's really not a joke. You're playing with people's lives here. And I was 100% convinced that we were giving inaccurate results for things like HIV and hepatitis C. Um, there were also times when people were told they were having miscarriages when they were not. Um, these things are really dangerous. These have real serious um, implications on people's lives. When you, when you start uh, calling out certain authority to tell about the inside story, I must imagine it must be pretty scary time as well. Yeah, well... They know where you live. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, they know where I live. Um, <laughs> I mean, and, and I barked up a lot of trees. You know, I... I spoke to my managers at Theranos. I spoke to the CEO. I spoke to the COO through an email, at least. Spoke to a vice president. I even contacted the, contacted the New York State Department of Health because they conducted a kind of audit on Theranos that we cheated on. So I contacted a, the New York State Department of Health, and then they referred me to some other government agency. And I, so I contacted that government agency. And none of that led to anything. It, you would think that after pursuing all of those avenues, not to mention my grandfather, who I spoke to, who was on the board. So I spoke to the executives, to management, to board members, to uh, regulatory agencies. Nothing happened. Um, and it wasn't until I, I spoke to John Carreyrou, a Wall Street Journal reporter, that things actually started happening. It's interesting. It's, it's like when you think about it, maybe... The, the interest level are different for different group. Like, you know, for the journals, this is some story that can be really interesting, exciting. And maybe for some other agency, more like, oh, well, maybe that's more work. I don't know <laughs> what they're thinking. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't, I don't have much of an explanation, except uh, I, I would say that in, I, I guess like for most companies or in the corporate world, there are a lot of checks and balances that exist. And in this case, they all failed. You know, the mm -hmm. investors failed doing their due diligence. The board members failed keeping the CEO in check. They, they failed following up on complaints from people like me and Erica. Um, to some extent, you could say that the employees failed. We didn't raise concerns. We didn't go to the FDA or CMS or, or the SEC. But that's because, you know, we were bullied and scared. Right. <laughs> the media failed. They all wrote glowing pieces about Elizabeth without getting her to answer any tough questions. So all of these checks and balances that, that should be in place to prevent something like this from happening all, all failed. The board, the investors, the media, the employees, the regulatory agencies, they all had opportunities to, to prevent this from happening and, and failed to do so. Isn't it crazy when you think about it? There's so many check, check and balance, like you're saying. There yeah, are, Every yeah. one of them seems to be like glossed over because of, I guess, Elizabeth must have to have this guilt that is so convincing. Yes, this is her superpower. <laughs> she designed all of these systems to intentionally fail, I think. That's interesting. So now looking back, I mean, it. And I'm just thinking it's good that you, when you join when you're young, but I think also sometimes or when you join 
company when you're newly graduate, this is your first experience. So sometimes people always one time told me like, you don't know what's a bad relationship until you've been to one. <laughs> and or you don't know what's a good relationship if you never had a good relationship. Yeah. And what are the things that now looking back, what are the things that you always, you know, that you should have thought about when you join the company? Yeah. What are the things that you have to like pay attention to? Yeah, that is such a good question and a really great analogy when you're talking about relationships. For me, I'm now very, very skeptical of NDAs. And I understand why companies need them. You know, companies do have trade secrets. They do have, um, you know, maybe business plans that they don't want their competitors to know about. But I think that pretty often they're actually used more as a tool for intimidation um, and to hide things that are not supposed to be hidden by NDAs. And NDAs are, I think they're written way too broadly. They're, you know, they're not specific and the people who sign them don't really know what they're signing. They don't know what the NDA covers. So I think, you know, my, my advice or what I will do when I, you know, if I interview at other companies is to actually, when I have to sign an NDA, be, uh, more thorough and looking at what it actually covers and try to see past, see what their intentions mm -hmm. are with that NDA. Um, and then I also think that just these in, these barriers that were put up to prevent communication within the company, that's another huge red flag. I think that if, if you're, a, um, let's say, a, a biochemist and you want to understand what the mechanical engineers are doing, there's no reason why you shouldn't know that. I, I think that right. in the same company. Yeah, you're in, you're on the same team. You're on the same team. It's like if you were playing basketball, and the point guard in the center didn't know what, weren't allowed to know what the play call was. <laughs> you just you can't. You're not going to be successful that way if everyone is just working in a in a silo. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting because sometimes you know I I was working. I have a, a working experience where. You know, a lot of people work in the same company. And when I left the company, they say, oh, I heard different company has different culture. Is that true? And I say, yes, you should try it sometimes so that you know. But again, it's um, knowing what is what is the right culture for you. Yeah. It's hard if you never try different places. Um, some people get lucky. The first job, you got the main, amazing culture. Yeah. And then... You remember, and not not everybody lucky that way. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. Um, another thing that just came to mind is, I think that I should have looked more, or I should have looked more critically at the fact that they had no peer reviewed data. And I think a company like Theranos should totally be expected to have peer reviewed data and to have, or to have some kind of published research. You know, most companies like this spin out of universities where technologies have been developed for a, long, a, a pretty long period of time in a lab before it becomes a commercializable product. Um, and Elizabeth supposedly dropped out when she was 19. She didn't license any IP from Stanford. None of this was published. So she was a 19-year-old in her uncle's basement, I think is the story, who invented this revolutionary technology. And that just sounds too fanciful to be true. Looking back, it's just, you know, this isn't Mark Mark Zuckerberg coding a website in his <laughs> dorm room. This is a medical device that a 19-year-old made in, in, in a basement on her own. It's just, 
Right. It just doesn't make any sense. And I, I'm like ashamed that I ever even believed that. <laughs> but a lot of people believed it. <laughs> right. I think you should not be too hard on yourself as well. You know, you were young. And at that time, Theranos got so much funding as well. So it's almost like you have external validation. Yeah. And I cannot imagine anybody who just graduated from college and would check, do you have peer review? Right. Likely yeah. Not, yeah. Right. So, and I think it's, you know, sometimes I hope the whole Theranos story doesn't happen very often. I don't think happen that often. So I we just did. I don't think things like Theranos happen at this scale very often. But by telling my story through, you know, podcasts like I hear from people all the time where there are shades of Theranos everywhere. Everywhere you look, yeah. there's some version some shade of this story. Maybe it's not to the same degree. Maybe it's not to the same dollar amount. But things like this, I think, actually happen a lot more often than people realize. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. So, which brought me to, you know, after the Theranos, you're now you're starting your own startups. And can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So, um, some people think I'm crazy. Sometimes I think I'm kind of crazy. But after leaving Theranos, I went and started working on another diagnostic technology with a professor at Stanford, um, where he'd been working over 15 years on this uh, technology that is essentially repurposed computer hard drive, you know, magnets that flip up and down to store zeros and ones, repurposing that idea to, to do diagnostics. And essentially, you have a biological reaction that flipped the magnets of a computer hard drive and it turns out to be a very sensitive, quantitative, easily multiplexable, low power way to do diagnostics. So in a lot of ways, it has the same um, kind of the same vision that Theranos did, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, measuring mul- multiple things, many things at the same time in point of care settings. But yeah, the difference is that we have 15 years of peer reviewed published papers. We have filed issued patents. Um, and so we're, I think we're doing it the right way. But it's interesting because when, when I left Theranos, I thought, wow, this opportunity is huge. If you actually had a technology that could do this, you know, you would, you could truly be a $10 billion company. And now I feel like I have a technology that can actually do this. And it is so hard it is so, so hard. And it makes me almost appreciate Elizabeth's brilliance even more. Elizabeth was able to raise nearly a billion dollars with almost nothing, like no real technology. And here I am with an incredible technology and I cannot sell the same vision that she was selling. Do you think she ruined it a little bit though for the people now? Because everybody got more skeptical. Yeah, I think people are more skeptical and I think that's a healthy thing. I think people should be more skeptical. Mm-hmm. 
And I think a big lesson here is that most of the investors in Theranos did not know what they were investing in. They're not life science, health tech type investors. You know, she targeted, um, you know, <laughs> I'm a little hesitant to use the phrase because a lot of these people are, are pretty smart, but she targeted dumb money. She targeted, um, you know, like Betsy, the Betsy DeVos's family. She targeted right. the the Cox family. They targeted mm-hmm. the wall the Walton family of Walmart, Rupert Murdoch. And those are all very smart, successful people, but not in healthcare. And they they felt like they were smarter than they actually were, I think. <laughs> I think. You know, when, That's pretty impressive. When, people are, when people are successful, they start thinking that they can't be wrong. And, and I think this shows that no matter how successful you are, like you can literally be a billionaire many, many times over and you can have huge blind spots. Right. I think what I learned in life is that nobody knows everything. That's definitely true. <laughs> it's finding some people who knows a lot that maybe can advise you that always is helpful. So now with your experience at Theranos and how, what make you, you know, what what lessons that you learn from how Theranos run that you apply to how you run your company? Yeah, so um, I, I generally think that the biggest thing is communication. And, you know, I we're very small, so it's pretty easy at this scale. But, you know, I want our mechanical engineer to be talking to our assay developer as much as possible, you know, and talking to me. And I want... I always want people I work with to not feel hesitant to raise concerns to me about about anything, about the way the company is run, about how a specific test is performing, about you know anything. I think there was a huge problem at Theranos where people were too afraid to actually speak up, and you can't you can't innovate that way if you don't identify problems, you can't improve them. And I I think it's really important that employees always feel comfortable going to. Um, their managers or to their leaders and 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 saying this is we have problems here that we need to solve <laughs> it's the only way you're going to to be able to solve problems is if people tell you about them and how do you make those people feel safe to express yeah their concerns so I think um I think one really important thing is like if you're working on something scientific and you have multiple scientists working on the same product, you're going to have a lot of disagreements and you're going to have arguments. It's If they're passionate scientists, you are bound to have arguments. And I think it's actually a really healthy thing, even if it doesn't feel like that in the moment. Like in the moment, you might feel angered towards someone like, oh, how are you not understanding what I'm telling you? How are you not seeing what I'm seeing? And um, I always think it's important in those moments to actually call that out and say like, hey, we're arguing right now and it's actually a really healthy thing. And we can design an experiment and we can both learn from this and then we can grow. And at the end of the day, I still like you and this is part of the process and this is a part of the process that isn't fun, but it's actually a good thing that we're, that we're doing this. Mm-hmm. It's like you almost have to call like a timeout. <laughs> like, you can be in an argument and say, timeout, by the way, I think you're great and it's a great thing and a healthy thing that we're arguing about this right now because we're both passionate and we both have the same goal. And do you think, is there some way to that, you know, I think sometimes um, when you see an organization that does not have much innovation, the culture of openness, 
the incentive is not aligned, do you guys think about incentive that allow this conversation to be more open or is just more, you just have that kind of culture and that was that enough? I think it just comes down to the people that you work with. I mean, I've worked with, you know, both at my company and at Theranos and I did briefly work at at Roche um, as well as at Stanford. And I've worked with apathetic scientists and I've worked with really passionate scientists. And um, even, even though the, sometimes the apathetic ones are, you know, easier, you know, you can, you're not going to get in arguments really. Um, I always find it more fun to work with the really passionate scientists, even that, even if that means that you're bound to have an argument or two. I think a lot of the startups do need more like that kind of scientists or engineers, because I think that's new idea. Yeah. Come out. Definitely. And as a leader, that's your job to bring that creativity out. Yeah, I think so. It's like, sounds like you're having fun with your new role here with the new company. Yeah, it's been a blast. Uh, I've definitely learned a lot. Yeah, it's been great. And as, and you got to set the culture that you want to set. None of that walls and barriers. <laughs> I would have to say that the best the best part about my startup has been the people that I've gotten to work with. We're a really small team, but we work extremely well together. And um, you know, I, I really just work with incredible people, and I hope I get to work with them forever. Yeah. No, I think that's the thing. I feel like you know sometimes. We chase the shiny thing, but not, not thinking about the people. It's always the people, isn't it? It's always about the people, yeah. And somehow we often forgot. Many people do somehow. And just to piggyback on that a little bit, Elizabeth clearly treated her employees like machinery. She wanted them to work as long as she could possibly get them to work, knowing that they would burn out and quit and leave. And that was part of the process for her. It was, we need people to work 12 to 16 hours a day, six days a week until they can't do it anymore. And then we'll find someone else to do it. I wonder that's also as a strategy for her because then people don't really know everything. Yeah, that definitely could be. Um, the turnover was extremely high. It was, honestly, it was just a miserable place to work. It was, it was really miserable. I'm sure next time when you say, um, um, I hope that you, you, you know, your Flux Bioscience is going really well, that you don't have to work in another different places, but I'm sure you can sniff it really quickly now. Yeah, I'm definitely a little more skeptical, but at the same time, um, I, I don't know. I'm still a very trusting person. Like I, I I'm almost surprised at how trusting I still am, <laughs> but... That's that's good. That's a good. Uh, I was. It's good that you know because I think sometimes when you become so cynical, bitter, then that's not a way to. I don't know. I don't think it's fun to live that way. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a good word. I've become more skeptical without becoming cynical. Yeah, and I, I think that's a good place to be. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a good place to be. I'm glad that your, you know, your twenty spent a lot on the Theranos energy, but I'm sure you learned so much from it. Yeah. And my 30s have been great so far. So I'm hoping my 30s are better than my 20s. We'll see. (laughs) 
Yeah, well, I'm sure that uh, there's a lot of um, interesting stuff that you can share with your future generation. But you know, I think what you've done is the courage that you t- you had. That's pretty amazing. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.